everyone, and thanks again for joining us at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics in Philadelphia. Conference. My name is Annie, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan. Convention, 10,000 people. It is my great pleasure to introduce our last panel of the day, Changing the Game, How the Sports Industry is Accelerating Progress in DEI. Our panelists today are Billy Bean, Senior Vice President of DEI and Special Assistant to the Commissioner at the MLB, Sola Winley, EVP Office of the Commissioner and Chief DEI Officer at MLS. Steph Strack, Founder and CEO of Voice in Sport and Voice in Sport Foundation. And Jonathan Bean, Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at the NFL. Our panel will be moderated by Katie Burke from HubSpot. The panel will run for 45 minutes and will leave 10 minutes <coughs> at the end for questions. Please submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag AcceleratingDEI. Questions will be selected by the moderator. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, Katie. Thank you so much, Anna. Big shout out to all the Sloan students doing all the Lord's work this week. And also big shout out to you because you're here rivaling happy hour. So we, our job is to be entertaining, informative, educational, and to be as good as a free happy hour might be outside. So it's a high bar, but I think we've We've got it. I feel good. good about our chances. We got this. Good. Uh, so I want to start with a lightning round, if it's OK. I'd love to start with quick answers from the panelists on what you think is the issue that is most overlooked in DEI at the moment. Billy, if it's OK, I'm going to start with you. I think the, the thing that's most overlooked is, is uh, executing your programming. People want to talk about it uh, with an understanding the amount of time and effort and building those programs and making, you know, it's a day-to-day, 24-7, 365 process. The actual follow-through, I think that's yep. an important one. So how about you? I think the thing that's most overlooked is the significant progress that's been made over the past couple of years, particularly within the sports um, uh, industry. You know, we, send, we tend to focus on the things that are not, uh, not happening, but there's been significant work that's taken place over the last two years. Um, and I think we need to spend more time talking about the uh, successes that we all have. I love your positive energy. I think it's fantastic. That. Steph, what about you? Um, I, you know, there's, there's many, but I think intersectionality is really important. It's not just women and men, black and white. It's really about looking at the intersection of race, gender, sexual orientation, disabilities. And I don't think that is talked about enough. I absolutely agree with you. Jonathan, what about you? All of those were great. I, I, another one I'd say is uh, we're really understanding the business of sport and where the money's going and who is benefiting from that and ensuring that we have a wide variety of businesses and individuals that are actually engaged that come from a variety of different backgrounds. I love that, such, a, such an important point. I'm gonna round this out by saying uh, that many DEI initiatives, one of the things we talked about at our prep call, benefit educated white women, and we need to talk more about uh, women of color and also uh, BIPOC leaders in the middle management level. So that's my, my plus one here. Let's, speaking of positive energy that Sol is bringing to us, what's an accomplishment that you are super proud of in your DEI work? Can be in your current role or past role? <clears throat> Well, I can talk about so much. I just naturally always like to think about what needs to be done. Uh, but I, uh, one thing that is relatively recent that I'd like to certainly talk about is the creation of um, a program that we have called the Accelerator Program. And what that is is we went to each one of the clubs and uh, said, hey, someone who's really talented as a coach or a front office executive, a uh, woman or person of color, invite them to the league meetings, get deep engagement with club owners and decision makers. Uh, it's a pretty simple idea that has been transformational and it's really led to some positive development for us. I love that. And one of the things you talked about was just the opportunity to get people's time together in the same spot and then to name drop them. So the next time you're yes. talking about someone <laughs> to be able to say, you don't know this amazing assistant coach, she's incredible. Exactly. If I could just go, you're exact, that's exactly <laughs> it. One thing that, you know, we talk about things like the Rooney Rule, we talk about all these other aspects of how we can increase diversity and have inclusion and equity in an organization. Sometimes you have to go back to the basics, human to human interaction, really getting to know the core of what someone's about, really looking them in the eye and really getting to know that individual and say, you realize that there's a really talented people out there that come from a variety of different backgrounds. So that's what it's all about. And, and we're leaning into that. Brag on yourself for a little bit. Like I mean, no, look, 94% of C-suite women um, were athletes. 
And if you dive into the data, since this is a data conference, 52% of those women in C-suite today were collegiate athletes. So I think what I'm most proud of like, is one of the programs we've built at Voice and Sport is bringing on collegiate athletes, teaching them their rights around Title IX. It's called the Viz Advocate Program for Visibility. Um, when they learn their rights about Title IX, they then evaluate their schools. When they evaluate their schools, they find them, unfortunately, not compliant with Title IX. And then they identify three things to drive change in their school. So through that program, we have won an ESPY last year. Sydney Moore, I want to shout her out. Um, one of the incredible young athletes that has come into this program and used her voice to drive change. So for me, creating that pathway to success for these young women and building that pipeline so that they're going to be working hopefully someday at these companies is something that I'm most proud of. That's incredible. You should be really proud. Tilla. Uh, there's, in, at Major League Soccer, we've had significant um, uh, progress in some of the outcomes and programs. Um, but I think none of that is possible unless we build the foundation to have sustained <clears throat> success. And um, I'm most proud of the fact that where we started in 2020, coming off of, of a period of tremendous crisis, not just in the industry, but in the nation, um, moving from crisis to now where we really have a sense of community. Stakeholders from across the ecosystem who are really working together to hold one another accountable to solve really important challenges that we have and challenges of who's going to represent the organizations that we lead, who's going to invest money into the development of players throughout uh, the soccer ecosystem. None of that happens without trust. None of that happens without bridge building. And a lot of that work has been extremely intentional. And any of the results that we talk about is really the results of a collective action that's taken place from across the entire soccer ecosystem. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Lots to be proud of. Last but certainly not least, Billy. <laughs> there's, it's so interesting, like what John was saying at the beginning, there's so many different uh, programs and initiatives whether where people, culture, and community are concerned. And when him talking about his program makes me want to talk about ours uh, the, called MLB University. Baseball has, is being judged uh, it, by whatever level of diversity we are, aren't by the, the representation we have on the field in manager positions, general manager positions, presidents. And so, I mean, there's so much other programming that is, uh, we're seeing faster gains in, in representation than in, in those jobs. But one of the things that we, we launched last year is called MLB University. We have two uh, seasoned, amazing experience, uh, uh, African-American men, Tony Regans and Mike Hill that oversee, um, and it's a candidate from each organization that is working in baseball that has been selected, and it's a 12-month it's a course that's taught by world-class uh, leaders of the, 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 the topics that would make someone selected to run an organization, manage an organization, um, and mostly dealing with labor's contract, draft, um, all those specifics, and it's uh, it's uh, you know, and, and it's complex in the way it's uh, um, comprised. But the the results will, we will see very very soon, and it's it it takes time to uh, to to execute or to see those results. But uh, the progress um, is in is in the work. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing, and uh, I will not be. I will not be messing up the mic, brother. Is that better? We're good to go. Okay, fantastic. DEI work and address is uh, is a whole hot mess. Apologies, sir, for the mess here. Um, what do you think most organizations get wrong about DEI, Steph? I'm going to mix it up and, and start with you, if that's okay. Yeah, I, I have three. Um, I think one is thinking that a trainee is, is going to fix the problem or fix the culture, right? Instead of looking at how and who is leading the culture. So one or two trainings a year is not going to fix the problem. So that would be number one. Um, number two is ERGs are incredibly important. However, they're not there to fix the problems. They're there to create change, to push the envelope. We need to have corporate leaders sponsor the ERGs and then be held accountable for the results of those ERGs. So if you're supporting the women of X company, um, then is your bonus tied to the results of increasing women in that company. So ERGs are incredible, but we need to think about the accountability. The third one is hiring. There are so many archaic norms in hiring process that we need to blow up. So one of those is thinking about who we hire based off of their title, their experience, or the current position they're in or what education they had. Instead, look at skill-based hiring. And that is something that fundamentally we need to change. 
I love that. I'm John, a little passionate I, about this one. <laughs> I like it. You're fired up. It's great. One of the things we talked about in our pre-call, John, though, was you said, hey, I actually think training has a, has a time and a place. Let's talk about yeah. what you think training can do. Yeah. So I, I think um, there was a lot of research, especially a, dec can you hear me? Yep. A, a decade ago or so, basically saying, look, training doesn't work. <clears throat> Don't do it. It's a waste of your time. Um, I, I do not agree, but I, I, I think if you have one-off training, it's ineffective. So if you have one-off inclusive leadership training or bias training or anti-racism training, um, one time, uh, it's a check the box, move on. But if it is a gradual, a way, take your organization on a journey. DEI is an individual journey of development, and it's an organ. So you have to learn together, and it needs to be continual. So we have DEI training every year on multiple topics. And, um, and why? Because we know that that's going to continue. We all evolve as human beings. And how do you do that? You get educated, you become aware, and then you model it in your behavior. I think you raise a really important point. Uh, Dr. Robert Livingston, who's just down the street at JFK, one of the things he talks about is people are asking the wrong questions about training. It's the alignment of training with the broader values and behaviors of the company. And if we ask that question, training can be super duper effective. And I'll say from our experience at HubSpot, we got one of the requests coming out of after the murder of George Floyd was to do anti-racism as a value training. So first day of HubSpot, everyone takes it. Do I think that you leave that hour course being the most wonderful inclusive leader? No, but it certainly sends a pretty strong message about what we care about. Mm -hmm. When you don't just set up your computer, you view that as something we view as important. So I, I would plus one. It's like not effective. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Sola, what about you? What yeah, do you just, think? So piggybacking on the training for just for a moment. So we, we, Major League Soccer recently, recently launched a 10-year partnership with Apple. And we're responsible for hiring all of the talent, both in front of and behind the camera. So producers, directors, on-air talent. And uh, we have, for the first chance, uh, first opportunity really in sports is to build a network from the ground up in the way that we uh, think is important and aligned to our values. And we started with training. And so we actually brought together all of the talent, all of the producers, all of the directors for a two-hour training that was really tailored and geared towards the work that they were about to embark on. For example, um, uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of research out there that talks about how um, uh, athletes are represented on, uh, on broadcast and on media. Darker-skinned mm -hmm. athletes tend to be portrayed one way. Lighter-skinned athletes tend to be portrayed another way. Uh, black athletes are portrayed as uh, stronger, faster. White athletes are portrayed as uh, more intellectual, more uh, crafty in their abilities. Um, and, and that's perpetuated throughout soccer. And it was very important for us that we brought uh, training to folks for a very important reason, is to make them aware, right, is that they might not be aware um, that these stereotypes that, that they're actually perpetuating. And it was important for us to bring uh, to that, it to their awareness if there's going to be any sort of behavioral um, change. And everything that we hear from our athletes is that they want that to change. They don't want to be represented that way. So there are time and place for training, particularly when it's tethered to a desired outcome that you're looking to get. Mm -hmm. You know, when Jonathan talks about the sort of long journey of training, um, it's more broad, right, from DEI. But when you're looking to make a surgical um, a shift in behavior, then it ha it's important that you bring people together with based on facts and research that can have tremendous impact. I absolutely love that example because there's so much of a focus on what's happening on the field, but one of the things you're talking about is how the rest of what shapes diversity and inclusion as part of the league experience, and that includes the media story that's told, how people are portrayed, suppliers, partnerships, corporate sponsors, all that kind of stuff, and I think those are all important considerations. It's, it's um, you know, we're all... We, we hear, the, we hear uh, continuous messages, right? And so we've all heard the message that uh, certain athletes are bigger, faster, stronger, and we just don't think anything of it. And so if we're going to start to shift culture on a more mass scale, it has to start with storytelling, right? The stories that we're telling um, have to be inclusive. They have to be uh, thoughtful and intentional. I love that. What do you think most organizations get wrong, Billy? Well, it's interesting, the examples, it, it changes my mind on uh, just listening. The, the, I, I will say the, when it comes to education, um, the evolution of what that, that one-off mentality, um, understanding the difference between sexual harassment training or unconscious bias training, um, 
you know, if leadership is not leading the way, uh, you made a very good comment, Steph, about uh, ERGs being expected to change the way they 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 provide the cultural integration and the and the lived experiences that are the, the great fabric of, of our companies. Um, but if your commissioner or your you know EVPs or your SVPs are not uh, in the mix, participating. Uh, and you know, being a part of that, it, it doesn't hold any value to the people and they ultimately will move on because people wanna work at a place where they feel seen and where they belong, they feel heard. Um, and inevitably companies, if they don't keep up, they're just going to lose significance in the, uh, because this new generation, it's, it's incredible where they have, uh, they have, the statement has been made that you know, it matters to us. And, and if I was gonna say um, one thing that I was most proud of only because of the, the, the battle, and I, I guarantee each of them, up here, my co-panelists co have a story, but coming out of, of COVID, um, MLB's uh, internal culture felt broken. I mean, we, we had poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into COVID testing and, and we were the first sport to get our players back competing in empty stadiums, and it, it just felt like the soul had been drained out of, of all of us. Um, um, but trying to get people to come back to work and, and, and feel like they wanted to be there, especially in New York City, you know, where, you know, for so many years, you know, with the, you know, public transportation, all those things, but our uh, ERG engagement really turned the tide, and we had full buy-in from leaders, and it felt like we were really trying to just hang out and, and you know, everyone's still working just as hard and it, it really um, was a sign that this evolution is, is, is the only way to go. I think it's, uh, you raised a few important points. One is on the ERG side of things. I think people sometimes take for granted <coughs> how much is expected, particularly of senior women and of black and brown leaders within organizations to do ERG work in addition yes. to excelling at their regular roles. So one of the things we do at HubSpot is we pay people to organize the ERGs, so that's all paid work. And so that as a result, if you want to volunteer, you want to help, you want to make suggestions, great. But we compensate people for that work because it does make a difference in how it's valued and rewarded. And then I think you raised something else about return to office. People talk about return to office kind of writ large, and not surprisingly, black women and people with disabilities have far less interest in coming back to the office because when people say the office worked so well before, it didn't work well right. for everyone. And so being mindful of, like, even as an example, parental inclusion, I've heard of companies being mindful of not scheduling 8.30 meetings so people can come into the office but with while still being able to do drop-off. There are ways to bring people back to an office in a super welcoming way that's mindful of DEI considerations as well. I mean, that's just managing, trying to understand how to build uh, teams that are successful and listening to, you know, when, you know, we have working mothers, uh, uh, just a, a tremendous dialogue of the, the, the amount of time from uh, not only commuting, but dropping your children off at school, what happened after in the wake of Uvalde, you know, the, their fears, their desire to stay at home. Um, this is reality. We're all, we're all managing and navigating to try to get the very best out of our, our teams. And if you're not listening to that, if you're, you're thinking it used to be, the way it used to be was the way it worked, again, you're gonna fall behind. That's such a good reminder. And actually it brings us perfectly to the next point, which is Sula, you talked about 2020. DEI work oftentimes is most in the headlines when something like the murder of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor happens or Ivaldi happens or things like that. How do you keep momentum going outside of crisis situations? So said differently, when things seem quiet, how do you keep people energetic and excited and enthusiastic to do this work? Well, I think it starts with yourself first, right? I mean, you have to make sure that you have a, um, a mechanism to take care of yourself, right? Because there's a tremendous burden and responsibility of uh, trying to change systems and move systems uh, forward. The momentum comes from success, right? Success breeds success. If we roll out successful programs and our uh, constituents feel that there's value, our owners feel that there's value, then that momentum is going to continue. Uh, if um, uh, the, the opportunities that we create for um, uh, coaches who are looking to ascend, if we're successful um, with that, then that's going to attract more coaches because they say that there's an opportunity here for them to succeed. So success breeds success. Um, I didn't answer the question earlier about uh, the mistake that a lot of organizations make. Um, it's to make an assumption that one person's going to come in or one group is going to come in, and that's going to be the answer. <laughs> that we uh, help to catalyze change, 
but it has to be a shared accountability and ownership to convert it to be systems change, and that takes some time. Um, and we're right in the process now of just building the foundation and getting going. Um, and so momentum comes from <clears throat> a collective energy. There's not one thing that's gonna keep the momentum going. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it's true that sometimes it requires there to be um, some sort of crisis in order to galvanize um, enough attention uh, to, to merit the beginning of change, but it's not enough to sustain it. The sustained change has to happen because there's value to the enterprise and there's value to the individuals within it. I think that's a really great point. And Steph, I'm gonna go to you on momentum. As it relates to gender diversity specifically, I hear a lot of people saying, I don't know where to get started, it feels overwhelming. If training doesn't work and these other things don't work, should we even, like where would we even get started? What's your advice to get momentum rolling at an organization that doesn't look as gender diverse as you might hope they would? Uh, well, I think one, one, first of all, is radical transparency, right? So if you're going to talk about a marketing campaign behind, you know, equality for women, then let's make sure internally and as an organization you are radically transparent to your whole org about where you are with your women. And that really needs to be at all levels because we see great stats out there on the women in leadership as an example. Oh, it's pretty good. But when you actually look at senior director, vice president, C-suite, and board, that's when it starts falling apart. So is your company really being transparent about all of those levels? Um, that would be the first thing. The second thing is boards. We have to get rid of some of these archaic norms that we think are the way forward to get women on boards. If one of the requirements, as an example, to get on a board is that you have to have board experience, how will we get more women on boards? Mm -hmm. Right? So right now we know that 28% of C-suite is, is, are women across the top 3,000 publicly traded companies. But 6% is women of color, and 28% isn't good enough. And so when you take a look at some of those cultural norms, that's, a, that's one that we need to really break apart. Um, the third thing is sponsorship. Women don't need to be trained. We don't, at that level, we don't need training. We, we need sponsorship. So is, is somebody in that room that's making the decision about your next career move going to sponsor for you? Are they gonna say your name in the room? And that's what women need in those organizations where they're just not getting over the top from that vice president level to the C-suite. Mm. Um, that, that's a huge miss. Um, so those are a couple examples of what you can do to get, to get started. But, I think accelerating a career path for women in your organization is something that every organization should be doing. So if you don't have an accelerated path built, mm -hmm. it's time to build one. Because it, we won't get caught up unless there is some actual programs in place in every organization that will accelerate these women because there are barriers. So what are you doing to create that accelerated path in your company? Make sure it's there. And then break down the norms of which people need to have this, that, and that to get to where, they, where we're trying to get all of these diverse leaders. That's the, the part we got to crush. I love that wisdom. The best time to start your diversity program was yesterday. The best yes. next time is today. <laughs> but tomorrow is not the answer. It's not going to get better. And one of the things when we were releasing our diversity data at HubSpot, our gender diversity was pretty good. But our racial diversity as a Boston-based company was, you know, embarrassing. And before we hit publish, uh, one of our execs said, well, I'm really concerned that our BIPOC candidates are going to know we're a mostly white company. And I was like, they know. Yeah. They know. Trust me, they know. You and I was it. like, and also, what's the alternative? They get here the first day. Like, how do you think that's going to go? Yeah. And what we found, not surprisingly, was releasing our data. Nobody expects perfection. Everyone expects, expects some level of transparency and progress, and that right. makes the world of difference. That's right. Jonathan, would love your thoughts on momentum. The NFL is in the headlines a lot with a lot of feedback on diversity. How do you keep momentum going and get energized and excited beyond the accelerator program? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, one is all of the the sports industry is such a big brand all of the all of the leagues are big brands so you know you're going to get the attention and you're going to get the scrutiny which we invite and and welcome but i think the the critical part is it goes back to we need to have a vision we have to we have to be clear on what our purpose is and what our strategy is um, we so we have to lay that roadmap we have to have accountability, and I love the transparency because that's one of the things that we're really working on. Uh, we're working on internal transparency. Uh, we want our employees to know 
that pay equity issues. We want to know where people are from uh, in terms of diversity at all levels of our organization. Uh, we compare and benchmark all of the clubs against each other, including the league office. So everybody knows where they are. Five quadrants, 90%, 75, 50, 25, and 10. So you, nobody, of course, no one wants to be at the bottom. So it's really driving. And then, and then really um, ensuring that you have innovation and creativity with this work. It can't be dry, because it's not dry. It touches everything. We're operationalizing DEI. We hit on this. There are so many great things that were said. My mind's just spinning, but <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's how are we marketing? Are we taking off the helmet? And when we're talking about our players, um, and, and how are we you know, engaging with businesses and ensuring that there's diversity there? Um, how are we, um, what are we doing for our employees? We're so, we're so focused on the fans and on the players and the game, but let's never forget our employees. You have to touch all of it, and you have to be innovative and creative and pull people in and hold people accountability and have clarity of your purpose. It's such a good reminder. When I switched from marketing to doing HR work, someone gave me good advice, which is you can't be the librarian for too long because if you're always the person who's shushing other people or slapping them on the wrist for stuff, people start to dread you coming, right? And as you might imagine, if I'm rounding the corner and you're like, oh, God, here she comes again, that's a problem. You're not going to want to talk to me about how we... And so I think your point on celebrating wins is so important. And I also think, to your point, just making it fun and energizing for people is so important so it doesn't become a headache. You just said something I have to throw this into. I love it. Is, um, you have to be humble with the work that you're doing and, and, and always acknowledge that there's so much more work to be done. And that's important. That that's the part of the transparency to our fans, to our corporate partners, to our employees, to our players, um, really saying, look, we're working on this. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to get some wins. We have so much more work to do and making sure that everybody acknowledges that. And, and, and that's a critical piece too. I love that. Coming from a place of humility is so important. Billy, I'd love to hear from you on momentum, how you keep it going within Major League Baseball. I mean, the, 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 the way that we did internally with the Office of the Commissioner with 1,500 employees, you know, we try to um, uh, elevate the lived experiences of our employees. That's something that never existed before. Um, the LinkedIn world is a huge motivator for young employees to elevate the work that they're doing um, and the composition of, of those employees, you know, what, whatever their identity is, um, does make people feel like they're, we're getting it. And before, you know, like you're saying, are we, you know, only talking about the players all the time? Are they the only thing of value? Um, and, you know, understanding that we're pushing out content 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we have people working around the clock, um, and they are valued. They're a part of it. We're, we're trying to create a, a, a family culture where there's a level of appreciation. We're doing the World Baseball Classic right now. I was talking to uh, co-worker Del Matthews. He's in Taiwan. He's going to be there for 18 days. You know, we, we want people to know uh, the type of commitment. You know, his dad played in the major leagues, and he's probably going to be a GM someday, but right now he's grinding and when nobody's looking, even though it's going to be an amazing experience and he'll be in Miami, you know, in 10 days at the semifinals. Um, and, and so for us, um, I think it's important when you do have those moments where the world stops and it's like, what is it all about when we're witnessing horrific crimes against human beings and, and uh, we feel helpless? Um, uh, talking about how we're feeling or asking how we're feeling um, has, has become something that um, has started to resonate in, in our house. Um, I, I feel like that uh, it's just important to, to um, I know ever since COVID, it just, it seems like we're, we're less reticent to talk about our, our mental health and wellness um, and what we need to feel like I can go, go, go to work for 10 hours today. And, and so I think it's just a, um, constantly elevating with the, the we have nine ERGs in, in our, um, at our, at the Office of the Commissioner, and we push out, we still, we uplift uh, stories about people in the minors at the club level, at the Office of the Commissioner, um, and things that make us feel like we're in it together. 
I love that. And I think you raised such an important point on asking how you are. I heard a DEI practitioner talk about after COVID that it's important to ask it a second time. So in other words, the first time around, you say busy or fine, right? 90% of the time. <laughs> the second time saying, just want to check in really, how are you? And being creating that space for vulnerability versus rushing into the agenda. I think that makes a huge difference. Uh, let's talk magic wands. Everyone has a wish list. Uh, it's not quite Chris's time for Santa yet, but if you could wave a magic wand in your organization to accelerate DEI progress, what would you use it for, Jonathan? <laughs> wow. Um, I think, I think um, to really, really have um, a, a, a a deeper sense of empathy and understanding um, of the challenges that all key stakeholders go through in, in our business. I mean, it's a daunting task, but uh, I feel across the board, whether you're a club owner or a player or, a, or um, an employee, just a, a deeper sense of empathy of the challenges that everyone has uh, and and, and also an acknowledgement of uh, excellence across the board. I love that, great answer. Steph, I'm gonna let you answer either for Viz, but also really for corporate America, so <laughs> up to you. I mean, for Viz, if Take I could wave a magic wand right now, I would ask for a strategic alliance with all major leagues. <laughs> if only we knew some pipeline, people, yeah, exactly. To create a pipeline of young women talent into these jobs that we know they are capable of doing. So that would be my magic wish uh, for Viz, <laughs> for Voice and Sport. Um, but I think it's really about changing. I see so many young women in my organization who are bright, capable, and, and they're not being let in the room. And I think that that is one of the things that I would love to see change is that when you're thinking about filling that position of the board or the C-suite or the next person on your team, think about the access of the people to your network, because most board positions, as an example, are filled by your network. But if your network only exists with people who look like you, it is really hard for those women to break through. So I would say, you know, just it's more of a plea out there for corporate America is to think about how you build your leadership team and how aggressive are you going to be to make those changes. Because we definitely don't want to wait another 100 years to get to equality for women in the C-suite and boards. I love that. Thanks for sharing. So, how about you? Uh, uh, two two parts uh, to it. One, you know, first from just from a humanistic perspective, you know, that I believe that uh, greatness in any great organization has to be tethered to goodness, right? The two cannot be um, separated. And um, I think we can use more goodness in the world, quite frankly. Um, uh, so that's one part. The other is just more more tactical. Is that for every club, right, to have a senior DEI person that reported into the owner? I think we've made significant progress, significant change. For every business unit to have somebody responsible within that group for um, driving DEI, um, uh, respectively for the business unit, right? So it's not just sort of isolated in one group. And so it's important to have sort of decent, to have centralized strategy, but you need to have decentralized execution and people have to own it and live it. One of the first things that we did when we got started at Major League Soccer is everybody got a t-shirt and that t-shirt said, I am DEI, right? That, um, uh, everybody has to own it. Everybody has to understand what their role is in participating on how we're going to move this organization forward. And if you can get that buy-in, um, then the work becomes a lot smoother, a lot easier. Um, and so uh, really to begin to decentralize some of the opportunities that, and catalyze some of the opportunities that exist for uh, business growth and business expansion. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Billy, how about you? So first, I want to say we have an amazing women's pipeline in baseball, and and uh, and and my one of our departments already did reach out to Steph, uh, the two Cameron and Sarah. So that's very interesting to know. But we also have four women who are presidents of business operations out of thirty organizations, which is incredible. Um, and there's more on the way for sure. And we have sixteen women in uniform on the field, uh, one in the majors and uh, fifteen in the minor leagues. Um, and those are coaches. Those are not. Uh, um, you know, there's mental skills coordinators and, and things that are close in living in and out of the clubhouse. But, um, and, and I really feel like our Take the Field programming, which is a women's program uh, that started eight or nine years ago, is where uh, these candidates have come from. We have two women managers in the minor leagues, uh, which is unprecedented. And 
Uh, it can only change. I think if I had a magic wand, which none of us do, and you can tell by how tired we all look, because it is a, <laughs> you become the parent of your values in your company when you have this job. And it is, it is devastating some days, because some days I feel like I'm so proud, um, and then there's just like one thing will, will happen and it's a punch in the gut, and it's not to feel any self-pity or anything, but it's because progress is slow. It's constant, and, and you know, you, we get um, the only, the conflict and, and, uh, and drama get the headlines, not the little wins. Um, but if I did have a uh, magic wand, I would, I would like for existing managers, especially in, in, in um, we call baseball operations, you know, that are close to the field, that are that are managing the team, and where all the analytics uh, are a part of. If those people would, for just for once, drop their fear of change and let that that um, that diverse um, energy into the room, because it everyone has to learn on the job. It takes a, a hot minute to figure out what you're doing when you walk into any new job. I don't care if you went to MIT or not, <laughs> but. Um, and it's, it's just about team building and trust and, and, and delegating um, and, and really the way managers are selected in our sport now, the first question they ask you is what kind of team can you build? It's not like do you know the X's and O's of baseball? Um, and, and, um, and so there, there's, it's just getting to, we're, we're right there. We're, we've, we've all been talking about it for a while. When I started, when I, I'm, a, I'm a former player, I played six years in the majors. And I, um, I always felt like the other in my clubhouse because I was the only living gay major league baseball player for 30 years until three or four months ago, a former player named TJ House uh, came out. Um, hey, just to interrupt, let's take a minute. That is wow. a big deal and you should be really proud <laughs> of what wow. you've done. It's and a big deal that he came out as well. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that I was raised, I played in the 80s and 90s. My dad was in the Marine Corps. I'm the oldest of five boys. I was raised Catholic. You can't get any less gay than that. There's just not, and, and I'd never met anybody that was gay and, um, when I was growing up. Um, and so I always expected life to hand me, uh, you know, I, I had the power to keep my, my identity a secret. And being good at baseball protected me from bias and, 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 and stereotypes that people in my community are, are subjected to every single day. And... And so when I was brought back to baseball, because I left it, my partner died of HIV-related causes while I was an active member of the San Diego Padres in 1995. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid to find out if I was HIV positive. Um, and I went to the park in the closet, grieving the loss of a partner and hiding my secret still from my friends and family. Um, and it is, it, what my lived experience allows me to do is to have empathy for everyone else's lived experience. When you walk into a, a conference room or a corporate a meeting and you're a woman, are you sexualized the minute you walk in because you look amazing and you're pulled together and you run 10 miles a day, or are you treated as a professional? If you're a man of color, are you thought that you're a diversity hire or you are your brother's the head coach of the football team, that's why you got the job, or what? Whatever bias or, or baggage people are bringing in, we're all subjected to that. And so our job um, is to find the, the, the space where we can allow everyone to feel like they're being judged equally. And that'll, it's, it's, a hum, it's an imperfect science, but if, if your leaderships are constantly demanding of that, then I think people are going to get as close to their total potential as possible. It's such a powerful reminder, and it gets back to what you were talking yeah. about, the humanity side of things, of just connecting with people on a human level. If you understand, which everyone does, obviously on a spectrum, but the degree to which it feels like the kid standing there with your tray waiting to be asked to sit at, sit at the cafeteria table, it makes a big difference, and then you can empathize so much more with other people's lived experiences. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go deep on a few topics we talked about in our pre-call, and if it's okay, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. I want to talk Rooney Rule. Rooney Rule gets a lot of discussion topics, and I also want to talk about the MLS stuff at, with you, Sola, because as it relates to hiring, 
There's a lot of talk about the Rooney Rule and its yeah. previous iteration, current iteration, but each of you have done some things that are really innovative to kind of update how we think about a modern Rooney Rule. What's worked about the Rooney concept and how you think about hiring at the NFL? Yeah, just so people have a sense, it was implemented in 2003. Um, Dan Rooney, who was the head of the DEI committee at the time, his son now is the chair of the DEI committee at the league. Uh, it, it was the goal from the very beginning. It's a diverse slate, essentially. And for every head coach position, it required for you to interview at least one black candidate, you know, one minority candidate for that role. Uh, it has since evolved quite a bit. Uh, now it is two external uh, diverse candidates. It could be inclusive of women, it could be inclusive of uh, any minority as, as well. Uh, but the goal of the Rooney Rule is to broaden the pool of candidates that a club would be looking at for an opportunity, whether it's head coach, general manager, coordinator, now QB coach, um, and also senior executive roles that we have at the league. That is the goal, and unfortunately, I think it's misunderstood. I think a lot of people think the Rooney Rule means, oh, that means that uh, it's a silver bullet and, and all of a sudden more women and, and people of color uh, are gonna get hired. And in particular, black coaches as it pertains to head coach, the Rooney Rule itself, its goal is to provide more access and opportunity to compete for positions, which is exactly what it's, what's, what has, it has done over the years, what we've noticed is more candidates are being interviewed. Um, what we've noticed is a vast majority of more diverse candidates are being interviewed. Where we're challenged is the yield, the actual hire, is still a challenge. It's a challenge for us with head coach. Um, we have more GMs that are black than we've ever had in the history of the NFL. More diverse GMs than we've ever had more diverse and black presidents than we've ever had in the history of the NFL. We're more diverse now than we've ever been as a league. You look at club diversity and also league. So um, there, that shows the effectiveness of our policies and also the Rooney Rule. I wanna, with that said, I think it's really important. <laughs> the Rooney Rule is not the answer and solution to us getting where we want to get with women and also with people of color, it's not. You need to put together other things, uh, other aspects to ensure that um, you're providing equity and an inclusive hiring process. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was the accelerator program. For us, it's every time you go through a head coach or GM search for us, you have to go through inclusive hiring training. Mm -hmm. The other thing we did is, in partnership with Russell Reynolds, we put together a best practice hiring guide. We sent it to all the clubs and we also use it internally. So it tells you from time of, of ideation of, of, hey, I'm gonna make a change, all the way to onboarding. What are the things that you need to be considering as you're going through it? So there's a variety of things that we all need to do in any organization that you're in to ensure that you're providing an equitable and inclusive process. I fundamentally believe, because there's greatness everywhere, that if we can focus on process and focus on the mindset of the decision maker, that we will see an increase of diversity in all areas. I mean, look at where we were just 10 years ago with, the, with quarterbacks and black quarterbacks. We had hardly any. Now you're seeing that some of the best quarterbacks that we have, look at this year's draft. Um, and, and we've seen a transformation in the league. We will get there, but it's gonna take more work and, and um, to, to make sure that we use all the tools in our toolbox, I like to say that, to make sure that we get there. But the Rooney Rule is not the solution to it. It is a one aspect of making sure that we get that equity and opportunity that everyone compete for positions. I think that's so important. And so MLS does a version of bringing uh, thoughtful hiring in, which is, as I, as I understand it, for any sporting role, two non-white candidates, one of whom has to be black. Is that correct? And yeah. how has that worked in terms it's, of your... It's, it's, it's correct. And po policies are very important, right? So it's important to understand 
what are the, how, how are uh, uh, folks being governed? What are the rules that are governing decisions that are being made? And are those rules um, enabling um, uh, progress or are they prohibiting progress? And uh, so similar to uh, the NFL, we had a policy that was in place, it was actually an initiative, it was called the Diversity Hiring Initiative in 2007, where everybody, you had to, you had to interview, we called them sporting roles in soccer, you had to interview one minority candidate for certain positions. There was no definition of what that meant. There's really no structure to what that was. We had no data on how we were even defining what minority was. And so we had to really start from, uh, from scratch. Uh, we organized uh, through our diversity committee. We have a unique diversity committee in Major League Soccer. It's comprised of a uh, collection of owners, as well as current players and former players, as well as an ERG representative. So we really have a diversity um, committee that is reflective of the entire ecosystem, which I uh, co-chair. Um, that, that committee, um, we spent uh, collectively with the committee and then a broader uh, group of stakeholders, over 300 hours sort of assessing uh, what do we want to accomplish and why? Right? What sort of outcomes are we looking for and how are we going to get there? And so what you're referencing really is the, is the outcome of that, where um, uh, for, uh, for every sporting position, from our academy all the way up to uh, our first team. Soccer is unique. Major League Soccer is unique. We have a player development pathway. Every, every kid from 14 years old all the way up to the first team. And so um, our academies have to abide by the policy. We have MLS Next Pro, which is our second division have to abide by the policy all the way up to the first team. We launched a program uh, similar to the NFL Accelerator program in uh, December of last year. We call ours MLS Advance. Similar components, how do we prepare um, candidates for, uh, for these interviews? As important as preparing candidates though, some of our general managers, some of our club presidents, they might have never interviewed a senior woman of, of color. They might have never even interviewed a, uh, a black uh, person to be a head coach. And they also, have to be, be able to get um, some training as well, right? So it's not just uh, one-sided. So we launched this program in December. We invited um, 12 uh, uh, ready candidates who are ready to assume um, a role. And, and within 45 days, 40% uh, of those candidates were hired into, into jobs. And I just want to take one moment just to read a note because we often talk about data and the 40% and it sounds great and we're really excited about that, right? It gives us a foundation to build. But these are real lives. Right? These are human beings that we're talking about who didn't have an access to an entry point to get the job, right? And we're creating opportunities for them to be seen and to be heard and to prove that they can compete at the highest level, right? So this says, good morning. I wanted to personally thank you for the time, uh, belief, and investment you made in helping me to take the next step in my career. As, be as I begin this journey with the Red Bulls, I'm excited and motivated to use the platform to continue to give kids the opportunity to live their dreams and to give validation to the belief that you and so many others have in me. My motivation to succeed always is grounded in my family, and I consider you three, two other colleagues of mine, uh, to be uh, family to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to me, that's what it's about, right? That's what the impact is about, having an impact on uh, another human being. And each of us, everyone in this room is capable of doing that. I love that, such a good reminder. Cool. One thing I think is an important thing to mention, I know we're short on time here. MLS Advance are the accelerator. A lot of times you think about that program and you think, who's that, who's that for? And I'm sure most of the audience would say, of course, it's, it's for the participants. I would surmise and say, it's just as much, if not more, for the decision maker. Yep. So it's not a one-way street, it's a mm. two-way street, very much so. Love that. May I make another wish? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> because listening to these incredible programs, it's exactly what we need to see around all of these organizations and leagues. There's a missing piece on accountability. And that's a wish I want to make really quick out there to everybody. Have you ever heard of a CEO not getting his bonus because they didn't hit their DEI targets? Anybody? Medallia has it, actually. Yeah. There are a few, yeah. yeah. One. That's amazing. Huge shout out to them. I think that there needs to be more of that. If we're gonna take it as serious as what we are all saying, and these incredible programs that these men are building, then we need to have the accountability from the top. And it needs to be connected back to how people are being paid. If revenue continues to be the, the marker for success and moving up, then it's, it's gonna be hard to see the success we wanna see and the progress at the speed in which we wanna see. 
We got some really awesome questions from our audience, so I want to make sure I ask those if that's okay with the group. We could talk for hours about this topic. We got a great question about how to prevent DEI work from being performative, and the example was Black History Month, Pride Month, Legos being rainbow-colored for June. Would love to hear from, maybe we'll start with you, Billy, how we make sure that the DEI work that we do uh, is celebratory but not performative. Well, I think there's, first of all, the, the Heritage Month like model is uh, expansive and, and it's an opportunity. I, if your programming is, is, is events that are celebrating the lived experience, it's not uh, MLB slapping a logo uh, on, on a bunch of commercials saying, you know, happy uh, Black History Month. We wanna show actual stories of our African-American family that, uh, that made that history. And so if you see that, if you see March Women's History Month, if you see September uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, um, you know, the, the LGBTQ community, I, I, I have to say, is, has really spoken up in recent years about the exploitation of the rainbow, uh, people, you know, putting that out there. What are, what are you actually doing? And, and a lot of times in, in diversity conversations, it gets kind of lost in the shuffle because we are a part of all demographics and, and historically, we're just in a different time and space when it comes to, uh, uh, I would say, participation in pro sports. And so, um, to me, it's, it's just credibility in your programs. Love that. Uh, we have a bunch of questions, so I'm gonna <clears throat> move us along. You mentioned um, less visible forms of, um, of diversity, and this person asked about disability and accessibility are often left out of DEI discussions, particularly in the world of sport. What can organizations and leagues do to make abilities and accessibilities top of mind? Steph, anything top of mind for you? What, sorry, can you repeat the question? Abilities what? and accessibility. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a minute. Le I thought no. you said leagues, so I'm like, what leagues can do? Yeah. I mean, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things is storytelling. Where are, where are the people today in those leadership positions? Tell their story. Make it more visible. It's why I created my company, to bring more visibility to women, other diverse voices in the industry. So number one is storytell the people that you already have in positions of power because that is missing. Seeing is believing. We need to see more people in those positions. So I think that's one. And another is speaking with them, making sure that you have, you know what it is that they feel like is missing and then support them along that journey. It kind of goes back to the ERG discussion. Um, there really needs to be accountability tied back to supporting those groups with inside your organization. I have, a, I have just a quick point. I think one of the most uh, popular uh, things that came out of the Super Bowl was the NFL's vision to do uh, highlight uh, um, accessibility with the hearing impaired. The woman that yeah. was uh, shadowing uh, Rihanna yes. is like a global celebrity. Now. Yes. <laughs> and it yeah. was one of the most enjoyable parts of the whole event. And it just, you know, I like three years ago, um, I got a letter from the, um, uh, the uh, Rutenberg uh, Foundation out of Boston, uh, and and it was just a subtle note of of, of baseball's use of the word uh, disabled list. Mm. Why do you continue to? Um, because it's it's it was just a misunderstanding of the term. And and I I, I walked over to the commissioner's office, um, and I said we we can change this right now. It's easy. It doesn't cost anything, and we change the name from the disabled list, a hundred years old. To the injured list and we've got so much uh, feedback and I was like it's it's not that hard sometimes you know just listen listen and 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 lead the way and and then that brings more people closer to your game and then you're becoming more accessible it's such a great reminder Jonathan you have we have a um, we are which is great we're we're launching disability right now uh, we have an incredible group. The other thing is, you know, you have to engage with the community always. Um, that means in and out. Uh, so we, we also have partnered with Lime Connect because um, we want to proactively engage and, and we, um, we see that as a resource for our for employees. And so we, we want to aggressively recruit as well and, and um, engage in every other way that we engage with all of our communities. I love that. I, th I think we could probably all do more, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. my, my brother-in-law is born with uh, spina bifida. He just shared a story with me um, about how challenging it is just to fly, right? How we just take for granted, right? He can't get up and go to the bathroom during his flight, 
Right? It's not like the airlines are going to make now all of a sudden extra wide aisles right? that he's, where he can do that. Right? And so uh, some folks' lives are really limited. Right? And we have to do everything that we can to make people feel welcome at every opportunity. Right? So the stadiums that uh, we're building, we have to make sure that they're accessible um, uh, and that people feel that they can have as good of an experience as anyone else in that yeah. arena. And I think we could all do more. I think that's such an important reminder. And you mentioned flying. We had a horribly embarrassing experience where someone talked about wheelchair accessibility and the first floor of HubSpot. And we tried to walk the path ourselves and do it as though you would be in a wheelchair. And it was it was truly impossible. And it's one of those things where you actually take the time to walk through the instructions you would give someone else and what they're, what that would be like. Um, and we have we have some additional work to do. So I, I'll join you in the commitment to do, do more there on that one. Um, would love to just end by, well, actually, Steph, I'm going to ask you one question. Male allies, what role do male allies play in creating more gender equality? I would love to hear some practical tips for how male allies can help. I mean, to all the men out there, <laughs> you are in the position of power to lift us up. And so I would just say it's a huge role. I mean, I talked about it earlier, the sponsorship inside of an organization, because we know the dynamic and the breakdown of the numbers at the top, it is absolutely crucial that men in powerful positions are lifting women up and they're supporting them when it gets tough. Don't leave them hanging when they need you. That, that really is something to kind of remember because I think there is often like sponsors of these groups, right? Um, I was involved in the Women of Nike group. Um, there's sponsors of those groups, but it, it takes more than just saying, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sponsor that ERG. It's, it's about bringing people into the fold and into the room. And I would just encourage all of the men out there to reach down and bring up several women along the way. Because it has proven in the number and the data, it's back to like why we're all here this week, it's proven that more diverse teams have better results and again, better revenue. Okay, with three and a half minutes to go, go ahead. Could I just, I'll use my time just to talk about that because I think it's really important is um, we have something called the Women's Forum, which we just, we just completed at the Combine. Uh, it was really well done. It's done by Sam Rappaport. She's done it for seven years. It's led to 225 job opportunities for young women aspiring to go into coaching, football ops, and other areas. And it's built off of allies. Um, we were there. We had, 12 ho head, um, we had 10 head coaches, 12 general managers. We had the commissioner there. We had, um, we had uh, four owners there. Um, it has, to, you need allyship. We all do. Mm -hmm. All communities need allyship in order to get there. Um, and and there, you're not going to get the progress you want. But, but um, we all need allies in all the efforts that we're doing in all the different spaces. Without it, we're just not going to move. Good reminder. Two-minute yeah. countdown. I'm going to hold us accountable for another lightning round. We talked about <laughs> hiring. Uh, we didn't talk enough. I'm going to call myself out on retention and growth. What's one piece of advice to make sure that organizations are prioritizing retaining underrepresented talent and growing underrepresented talent, regardless of what type of organization they're in? Steph, you mentioned sponsorship earlier. We mentioned ERGs. Let's give people a tip on retention and growth. Sola, you're making eye contact with me, so I'm starting with you. Oh, um well, everything is just making. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine. Um, representation is very important. If they don't, if you don't see folks that um, that uh, reflect uh, you back, and you can see yourself in them, it's very difficult to retain people. When I started Major League Soccer, we really had uh, challenging um, times with uh, with our black employees because there wasn't a lot of black leadership. I'm the first uh, senior black executive in the league's 27-year history. And um, so we have to give people a reason to stay, right? And um, uh, saying that we have a, a bunch of diversity initiatives is not good enough. They have to feel a difference in their life every single day by the um, opportunities that they're given, um, by the um, promotions that they have access to, by the pay that they're given. Um, uh, and that can't just be talk. It has to be action, right? That culture matters. And there's not a successful organization out there that's not fueled by culture. Um, and the data is out there already, right? We don't have to do more data, right, about inclusivity and innovation and how that drives revenue. Um, uh, so if we're going to retain great people, right, we, uh, we like to say that we're the league of choice, right? We want the best players in the league to come work um, and compete at Major League Soccer. We want the best talent from around the world. We want the best coaches. We want the best employees. 
And it's one thing to, for employees to make a choice to stay there. We've got to give them a reason to stay, right? And our reason is to create a culture where they can um, uh, add tremendous value. Unlike some of the other sports leagues that have been around a little bit longer than we have, um, we've got plenty of work to go around. And so we don't have a large uh, infrastructure. Um, um, and so there's no uh, shortage of opportunities for people to demonstrate their value and demonstrate their worth. And as leaders of organizations, we have to create those opportunities for people to shine. I love that. We started with uh, positivity. We're going to end with your positivity, if that's okay. You all are doing such amazing work in your organizations and in the world, and I just want to say a huge thank you for your insights today, and thank you to all of you for your thoughtful questions. Look forward to continued conversation and progress, and Anna, thanks for wrangling us cats and organizing an awesome panel. <laughs> and for hanging out till 6.15 yeah, on the Friday. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah.